Welcome to the latest DE download on 2 Other Rebooted, where we tell the stories of BBC design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson. Today we talk about the BBC's history, as captured in its archives, but we kick off with a look at a project that's trying to make the BBC a better place for everyone who works here the CAPE project. I sat down to talk to Sean Gilroy, Head of Cognitive Design in UXD, and Lena Hack, a senior designer also in UXD, and I started by asking Sean to tell me what CAPE does. Well, CAPE stands for Creating a Positive Environment. It's an initiative that we started back around 2014, 2015, and we are looking at how we can improve the environment, make it more accessible, specifically for people with neurodivergent conditions. So conditions such as autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette's, just to name a few. So these are conditions people might have that might not be obvious to other people, but which get in their way in the workplace. Absolutely. They're commonly referred to often as hidden disabilities, but within the framework that we're working, so this idea of neurodivergency or neurodiversity, uh, we're looking to advocate the positive skills and talents rather than focus on them being disabilities as such. And Lena, what are some of the issues that, that people with these, with these conditions might face? It's quite varied. Basically, uh, it, it ranges from communication issues potentially learning styles are different and uh, environmental issues so the environment may not be um, accessible to them and it might impact the way they work and function and uh, also social interaction issues can be uh, quite common and a lot of the traits are shared uh, amongst neurodiversity and neurodivergency so you know an individual can have more than one neurodivergent condition do. So that's quite common. So that's just to name a few. We think a lot about physical accessibility of the, of the workplace. You're talking about something quite different here, aren't you? Yes, um, I like to say it's almost a hidden world that's suddenly awake, you know, that the world, the rest of the world is waking up to. And uh, not a lot of people know about these conditions and the fact that um, there are more people with hidden disabilities and conditions than say people with visible physical conditions. Most people know more so the fact that uh, in relation to physical accessibility, they know more about that. Through CAPE, we're trying to educate people more about hidden disabilities and conditions. And what does that education consist of, Sean? We are looking to try and develop uh, tools to help line managers understand more about the conditions so that they can better support people. Uh, if somebody does disclose. We're looking at thinking about the environment people work in. Um, so we've come up with a checklist, basically helps describe what best practice is and, and, and what uh, poor practice or, or worse practices, kind of, you know, bad design within office environments. We've also developed a couple of films uh, just to help tell the story and explain some of the challenges that people might find uh, in everyday employment. And we've thought also about uh, visitors coming to the site or staff visiting to the site. Uh, so we've devised an accessible film that just explains a little bit more about the environment people are coming into so that if, if they have any uh, coping techniques or strategies that they need to employ personally, they can do that and plan those well in advance of any visit to Media City. What else would you like to be doing in future? As Sean said, we'd, we'd like to explore the positives of being neurodivergent and having a differently wide brain, uh, as we like to say, because I feel that's, that's, I guess, that's a world that's not been explored yet. So we'd like to talk to more people and um, find out more as to what what the talents and skills 
that people have to offer and for them to talk about their world uh, because they're hidden worlds. A hidden world is a good way of putting it. And, and it sounds like you're saying a hidden world of potential within the BBC for all sorts of creative engagement and activity that we're not currently taking advantage of. Definitely. Like I say, it, it is a hidden world and the BBC definitely can benefit from, from exploring this hidden world because there is a lot of untapped talent, you know, potential outside of the BBC and inside the BBC that we probably are missing out on. So that's why the work that we're doing through CAPE is very, very important for us to be able to sort of, I guess, unleash this talent and uh, give people the opportunities that they normally wouldn't get because of the barriers that they face within the workplace and also the recruitment process. Yeah, the recruitment process must be quite difficult. We've we've worked with a couple of external organisations, actually. Uh, we advised the Westminster Commission or a Westminster Commission that was looking at neurodiversity and employment or neurodivergency and employment. So we we were talking to them about some of the things that we do here at the BBC and some of the things that we've devised. We were also we also work with CIPD, the professional HR body. Um, and they've come up also with another report offering advice to people on what best practice around recruitment looks like, uh, what reasonable adjustments looks like, and a little bit more explaining some of the individual conditions that people might have. So we thought that that we could Uh, by working with these organisations, we could share some of the things that we do here to help other employers, big or small, um, just think about how they can be more accessible. You talked about sort of unleashing the the, the potential. You're actually working within UX and D on a project around those aspects of of the creative possibilities that come from engaging with the the neurodiversity within our workforce. Yes, we are. Interestingly, um, there's a lot of work being done or or a lot more uh, information coming out from the technical area. So um, employers like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, SAP have all got recruitment programs looking specifically at neurodivergent conditions. We're thinking more about the creative applications and the, the specific skill sets that neurodivergent people have within the area of creativity. So we're, we're very much interested in exploring what that means, uh, how do we use more of that, how can we get more of that as a creative organisation, obviously it's important that we think about creativity in its broadest sense. For me, I feel personally that a, a little bit of support can go a long way. If you if you have a neurodivergent condition, and um, I feel that the the environment is disabling, the the individual is not. Also, for anyone I guess with who's considered disabled, if the environment's right, then they can flourish, and that's the key message of what we're trying to highlight. There are people out there who've done exceptionally well, who 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 have disclosed to the world that they are neurodivergent. You have Elon Musk who has uh, Asperger's, and uh, you have um, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. He's got Asperger's. Richard Branson. He's got dyslexia. All neurodivergent people who've proven that despite facing adversity early on in their lives, they, they've made it and they've, they've become successful. So if they can do it, there is no reason why anyone else can't do the same. So we want to highlight the positives and the fact that it's, it's about supporting the individual and, and not writing them off, so to speak. And the work of Kate needs to sit within a wider community, doesn't it? 100% yes. I feel that the subject of neurodivergency is on the fringes of of the whole diversity agenda. So for it to become a discussion point or just to have that conversation on par with other agenda topics such as gender, race, you know, and LGBT, uh, we feel it deserves an an equal platform. 
because a lot of people are affected by uh, you know neurodivergency and uh, a lot of people if they're not personally affected they they have family members you'd be surprised as to how many people are impacted by by neurodivergency and we want to be able to talk about it and normalize it because there is still a stigma attached to having a hidden condition or disability. So we want to remove the stigma by having that open conversation and people feeling comfortable to talk about it and not be afraid, you know, that they'll be judged. And uh, just the fact that they'll get the opportunities in life that they deserve and a fair sort of level, level playing field, I guess, when it comes to employment. So that's where we're at. And we believe that having a community, and I always use the analogy of, of, say, Minecraft, where it doesn't really matter what background you're from, what race or gender you are, anybody can play, what age, it doesn't really matter. Anyone can play. And, and that simple concept, I think, is we can be inspired by that and apply it to every aspect of the working environment. Sean Gilroy and Lena Hack there. And you can find out more about CAPE by contacting them directly or on Gateway. This is the DE download from 2LO Rebooted, and now we turn to the past. Our roving correspondent, Prue Stubbs, has been talking to Emma Gibbs, who works in BBC Archives. Having spent eight years developing partnerships with the archives myself, I know just how important they are to the BBC and how important they are to our audiences. So it's good to hear from someone deep inside the machine. My name's Emma Gibbs. I work as an archivist for the AVNR team, which is a group of people within BBC Archives who look after TV and radio content. My job is a mix of project-based work and dealing with inquiries from production staff. We assist both in-house programme makers and also people from indies who are making BBC programmes. On a daily basis, I do archive research, help enhance the metadata in the archive so our incoming programmes are more findable, curate collections of content based on themes and anniversaries, and also perform checks on items which have been digitised as part of our preservation work. We also take on special specialist ad hoc projects as required and at the moment a colleague and I are working with Blue Peter because it's a programme's 60th anniversary this year and they want lots of archive from across the decades. This includes specific iconic moments as well as obscure clips which people will have forgotten about. It's a really fun project to work on because we're finding some real gems. Tell everyone what metadata is if they don't know. Okay metadata is uh, information about items and so um, with the BBC programme it might be the unique UID so the programme number the version number all the information about what the programme's about who is in the programme and then the information about the formats and the holdings. So we monitor the metadata attached to our assets and make sure it's adequate so our material is findable and that there's a minimum standard of metadata to provide consistency across the archive. And you were the person who taught me how to do copyright and why that's all important. Yeah, I mean, the the archive doesn't advise on copyright because there's a whole uh, rights team which is kind of involved in that. But we can kind of provide the contact information for programme makers if they then need to go about clearing their clips and finding out whether or not they can use material or not. It's such a cool place, but where is it? The main archive centre is based in Perivale in London. Most of our team are based there. 
but we also have archivists based in Bristol in Salford. The main archive centre holds physical assets, including film items and TV and radio tapes, which are all held in temperature-controlled vaults. But increasing amounts of this material is being digitised and put online onto our searchable database, the Digital Archive. DA is accessible to any member of BBC staff who requests it, and they can view and download full-res copies of programmes on their desktop computer. All new programmes are delivered to the DA as files, but there are also a lot of other great archive programmes on the system. Many of these predate the material which is held on Redux, and the DA includes things like old episodes of Tomorrow's World, past Doctor Who's, and a whole host of children's programmes from the 70s and 80s. I'd encourage everyone to sign up and have a look at the DA, because there's some fantastic programmes on there, and it really shows how programme making has changed over the decades. You're right, it is is like a digital playground of cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and the way we're um, digitising our collections, we're not digitizing stuff in a in a way where we're like starting from day one it's like different collections that which are being um identified so at the moment all of our archive items that are held on d3 which is an obsolete um digital tape format have been being put onto the digital archive so there's a real mix of material some of the the programs might be from the 1950s and then there's stuff right from sort of 70s 80s 90s so there's a really really good mix of programs on there and we're continuing to digitize content and put it on there so it's just getting turning into a better and better resource is that why it's such an important thing to have a bbc archive the archive is is the heart of the bbc it's not just a vault full of old programs that never get watched it's an active resource which is used on daily basis by our program makers preservation is allowing more and more of our content to be accessed by anyone at the bbc via their desktop and the staff within archives are making sure that much more of this content is 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 findable as possible the archive not only represents how the bbc has developed across the decades but it's also providing a valuable resource which is used constantly for the creative development of new ideas and content. You wouldn't think it's a groundbreaking place. It's kind of a groundbreaking place at times. It's always been there. It's always been accessed a huge amount. I get slightly frustrated when you see TV programmes where people say we've been like trawling the dusty corner of the archive and found lost items because they're all catalogued. They're all on the system. They're, they're findable and we've got a team of really fantastic archive experts who are who are there to help find stuff and yeah it's it's just joyous that so much more of it is viewable online now and and accessible on your desktop oh you just said about there being some obsolete technology that you've had to upload because it's not obsolete technology so how has the archive changed when i started my career at the bbc 20 years ago the archive was almost exclusively made up of physical assets and we, re- we relied entirely on text-based cataloguing and shop lists to find what we needed. Archivists did a lot of research on behalf of others and we had to know about film and tape formats so we could select the right material. This has changed enormously. Lots of our material is now held digitally as both full-res broadcast quality copies and viewable proxies. So we need to know about file formats and codecs as well as tape formats now. On top of that, programme makers can do a lot of research themselves and actually see the content they're looking for before they select it. 
So whilst we catalogue less, the research inquiries which come to us tend to be more involved and complicated as we find ourselves helping out with the trickier and more obscure inquiries which production staff need expert help with. We're also faced with an increasing amount of content to deal with, so we're having to work smarter in order to make sure as much of our material is logged and archived well so it can be found. That's why we've been taking a more proactive approach by creating curated collections of material on the digital archive, as well as responding to specific inquiries from our users. As for the future, content will continue to change, and not just in terms of the format it's stored on. We're increasingly seeing new ways of content creation being explored, such as AR and VR content, non-linear storytelling, object-based media, visual perceptive media... The BBC archive of the future may be very different from the one we're familiar with now, but in archives we've always been great at adapting how we work to accommodate new technology, and I think we will continue to do that. Absolutely, especially seeing as the BBC is nearly 100 years old. Yeah, I mean, in 2022 we've got the centenary coming up, so there's a wealth of material in the archive, which I imagine will get exploited and utilised, and I really hope so, and I hope we pay a central role in that. Emma Gibbs there, interviewed by Prue Stubbs. And that's it for this D&E download from 2LO Rebooted. Stay tuned for the next one, and if you've got a story you'd like us to tell, please do get in touch. You can find 2LO Rebooted on iTunes or SoundCloud, and if you've enjoyed this, please tell your friends.